Well, for the past uh, month or so, I have been listening to a new podcast. I listen to two kinds of podcasts, by the way. Uh, sports podcasts and history podcasts. Um, I don't do news. I don't do pop culture. I don't, I don't have time for those things. Um, I want to know about things that put other people to sleep. But one of the podcasts I've been listening to recently is a history, it's called The History of Rome, and it is just that. I don't know anything about the history of Rome. And I'm interested in it in part because so much of the Bible happens on the backdrop of the Roman Empire. So I am learning all sorts of things. But one of the things that is interesting in learning about Rome is that because it was around so long, there are a whole bunch of what-if moments to it. Um, if things had just gone a little bit differently, the world it just would not be recognizable to us. Um, and this is kind of the way history is. We always look back at history and we go, well, it inevitably happened that way, but it never inevitably happened anyway. It happens because of how people act and work on it. And so one of the things I learned about this week was the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest. Um, I had heard this before. I didn't know what it was. Maybe you don't. But the Romans in 980 sent an army up to the Rhine River and tried to invade the Germanic tribes. And it really should have been uh, Rome far outmatched the tribes. But they lost. They lost the battle. And it is a big battle because after that, Rome said, well, we're not going to try that again. The Germanic tribes can do their thing. We're going to leave them alone. And this matters because if Rome had won that battle, there is a good chance that none of us would speak English. That the German language wouldn't exist anymore. Because if Rome had conquered these tribes, they would have wiped out the peoples who spoke that language. Can you imagine just a world without English? We'd speak Spanish or French or one of the Latin languages. And I love thinking about that. And I'm going to tell you in first service, I think um, Dan Hilgadeek was all about this, this metaphor and nobody else uh, reacted to it. But this is the way history works. We always think it's inevitable that things have to work out this way, but they don't. History is often people going out on a limb or taking a chance, or often it's a fluke. And because of one battle or moment or speech or action, everything changes. History is made by these actions. It's not inevitable. It doesn't march forward on its own. And often when these events happen, we don't know where they'll lead. The Romans had no idea that, that because they lost, the English language was going to continue. They didn't know what the English language was. I actually don't think there was an English language as we think about it at the time. But because of this one moment, history changes. And so that is history. It changes because people change it. And so with that in mind, I want you to hear this verse from the 11th chapter of Hebrews. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land. But when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after they had been encircled for seven days. And by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had received the spies in peace. And what more should I say? 
for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And women received their dead by resurrection. Others were, others were tortured. Others were... Did I turn off? Okay. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about... They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Yet all these, though they were commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had promised something better, so that they would not, apart from us, be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. And may God bless this reading. Well, if you go back and you read through the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, what you get is a whole bunch of stories about the Hebrew people doing their own thing, going their own way. And sometimes that way is in line with what God is calling, but often it's not. They get stuck wandering paths that are not the paths that they're supposed to be on, and they get stuck. Often they get too legalistic, or they forget about the plight of the poor in their communities, and God has to intervene and change the path that they are on. God reaches down and disrupts their patterns. And I think today when we listen to this passage in Hebrews, this early church sermon, this author is in one of those times. You see, the early followers of Jesus belong to one of those movements, one of those movements that is breaking with the immediate past. They are indeed retaining what has been. They have a common faith to their ancestors, but they are doing things differently. They are doing what Jesus commands when he says you cannot put new wine in old wineskins. You have to get new wineskins. And so the author of Hebrews exists in this conversation about what this change will mean, about how God is disrupting and calling this community to something new. There are those in the early church who want to maintain the traditional structures. They want the law for everybody, the Jewish law. And yet we hear Paul say that in Christ, the law is no longer necessary. They want the table to remain separated They want Jews to be at one end and Gentiles at the other. And so we hear these debates happening in these early churches. As early as the Gospels, you hear Jesus sparring with people over the holiness codes. 
Or you hear him challenging the system by welcoming those who have been segregated, like those who are possessed by demons. Jesus welcomes them back into the fray. Those lepers who are on the city, on the sides of the city, Jesus goes out to them. The way things are, the rigid structure that makes the world possible, Jesus rubs up against that, tries to disrupt it, to change it. And you hear this in the New Testament when Paul writes to the Galatians and they're debating about whether or not there needs to be circumcision anymore to belong to the covenant and talk about a moment in history that would have made things a lot different today. <laughs> Luckily, they sided on the side of not needing circumcision. There are debates about a council in Jerusalem about whether or not the Gentiles can belong to the church as full members or as second-class citizens. These are debates that are happening about the structure of the church. And God brings about these changes through prophets and apostles. When God calls and says, what is happening needs to change, it needs to evolve, it needs to grow. God disrupts these things with new work. So God calls us into new futures that we we have to have the faith to walk into. Even though we don't always know where they lead, we have to be willing to take the new paths laid out in front of us. And I think this is the great race that the author of Hebrews is talking about. Those who have come before have operated out of faith. They have circled Jericho until the walls fell. They have walked across the Red Sea on dry land, not because they knew where it led, but because God had called them. And indeed, earlier in our chapter for today, we hear the familiar words from Hebrews. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We move in faith, not because we always know where we're going, but because God calls and God is faithful. And so with that in mind, I wanted to talk a little bit more today about our, our call to a year of discernment. Because we are being called in a way to, to walk in faith. Not always knowing where we're going, but trusting in God to lead us. And I wanted to talk about it today in particular because I want to let you know that what we are proposing is not without reason. It, it didn't come out of nowhere. Um, and for those who weren't here last week, just to do a rundown, our plan is to spend the next year in a year of discernment. We are asking the various committees and the board to pause for a little while, to stop regular, regularly meeting, and to trust the executive committee to handle the day-to-day -day business. It's not a draconian rule. If there's a need to pull committees back together, we will, but we want to make sure that there's enough space in this community to have conversations about what God is calling us to and the second part of it is to use the small group meetings that are starting in September to have conversations about what is most important to us about our faith, about what drives us as Christians. But I want to assure you that we're not going off the deep end, and this is, we're not going rogue. We are following some advice and some guidance that comes from both within the church and the larger um, business community. And so one of the resources we're using is a book called Holy Conversations. 
It's a book that is recommended to churches who are in discernment of different kinds. And so Holy Conversations proposes three different kinds of planning. So the first one is called problem planning. And problem planning is what happens if you have a problem that has a clear answer. Um, a really great example is last week we learned that our sound system doesn't always work well, which is a problem that we should address. But it is a problem that has clear answers. We can change the way in which we use the mic. I think Steve was giving me a hard time saying I could shave my beard. I don't know that I want to. <laughs> we could use overhead mics, which we're purchasing this week. We could explore soundboard options. We could explore audio equipment. There may be material concerns. We may not have the resources right away, but the answer is not hard to find. That is problem planning. So the second kind of planning that this book talks about is called developmental planning. And developmental planning is a little bit more complex. It takes about three to six months to do. And when you all went through the new beginnings process last year, that was developmental planning. It asks what's next for our church, for our community. And so I'll read this quote. Developmental planning is based on a fundamental assumption that things are good, that what we are doing is faithful and authentic. It assumes the congregation has a strong sense of its identity and purpose and has been actively at work living out that identity and purpose. The primary goal of developmental planning is to determine the next steps, building on what is presently being done. And so this kind of planning requires some diagnostic work. And so we had a consultant come in and talk to the church, and we have an 80-page document about who our neighbors are and the trends in finance and worship attendance and all that. Um, all of that was part of this process of developmental planning. And so it tries to answer these, um, it tries to come up with these answers. Here's where we are. Here's where we want or feel called to be in the future. Here's a description of the gap between where we are and where we want to be. Here's what we have to learn or do to get there. Here are our, our options for making the changes to get there. And so we got through that process and we have some documents about how the small groups went and how you all felt about where we were. And what became clear was that, you know, developmental planning says it relies on a clear sense of vision that we don't always have that. We don't always know the purpose behind everything that we're doing. We're lacking some of that. And so the third version of planning tries to deal with that question. And so the third version is called frame-bending planning. I don't like that name, but I guess I'll use it. Frame-bending planning. It lasts 12 to 18 months. The guiding assumption we read in frame-bending planning is that things are not working and are not faithful and appropriate to the present setting of ministry. And so frame-bending planning is a process designed to highlight and disturb expectations in order to make space for the possibility of an unseen or unconsidered future. You actually try to disrupt what is happening, which is why we are calling for the pause in committees so that you can be prepared for what comes next, so you have space to allow something new to come. And so we have done the developmental planning. We have all sorts of information about the church. 
in our neighborhood and the people around us. We've had conversations about who we've been. We've given feedback. And so now we are being called to this further version of planning, frame bending, which requires us to get a little bit uncomfortable and to move in a direction that doesn't always have a clear answer. And so last year we undertook the question, what do we do about our decline? And this year we are furthering that question to say, what is God calling us to be? For our mission isn't always in line with the community around us. And what I think is, you know, that's true for the majority of churches in the U.S. right now. Most churches, I think, are in need of this frame bending to discover a new way to move forward, a new way to understand and to do church. And so why are we doing it this way? Well, if you ask most people, and I know this because I have a sheet that was presented to this congregation about the small groups, if we asked you why we were doing this, the answer that most of you all would give is, well, we need to grow. And some of you might get more specific and say we need more young people. So not just that we need more people, but we need a specific set of people. And I, I, don't, I think you're right. I'm not one for measuring butts and seats as success, but there is something to having new energy flowing into the church, to have critical mass. Those things, I think, are important to think about. But when we just say that what we need is more people, we haven't gotten to the crux of the problem. So one of the resources that goes into New Beginnings is the work of a, of a business leader named Simon Sinek. And he gave a really popular TED Talk about 10 years ago, which um, is it's sort of ironic in this whole process because halfway through, they take away his wireless mic because it's not working right and give him a wired mic. But he wrote a book based on this TED Talk called Start With Why. And according to Sinek, people don't buy what you do. They buy why you, why you sell it. They don't buy your what, they buy your why. So companies that don't start with why don't often last long. So this is, a, I, I love this example. He uses this example in his book. He talks about TiVo. Does anybody use TiVo? Everybody knows what it is. 20 years ago, there was a product that you plugged into your TV and it recorded live TV and you could rewind and fast forward and you could save all your TV shows. And it was this revolutionary product and they told people over and over again what it does. They never said why you would need it. They just said what it does. And it's become ubiquitous now that some people actually refer to recording television as TiVoing something, even though nobody owns a TiVo anymore. Uh, and if you Google today TiVo, the first question that comes up is, does anybody use TiVo anymore? It's the first question on Google. So they sold a what. This is what our product does. They never sold a why. And so the companies that are most successful are the ones that start with why. Apple is the best example of this. Apple presents themselves as an iconoclastic company that is out to disrupt the trends and change everything you know about computers. Some of their most popular ads don't have their products in them at all. And yet, 
If I show my mom a Samsung Galaxy, she'll say, oh, that's a nice iPhone. Another one of my favorite examples of this is the company Southwest, the airlines company. When they came out with their product, they said that their why, they wanted to help people travel the country for less money. They had a very clear why. And you hear it in their slogan, you are now free to move about the country. Their why is front and center. And other companies have tried to copy them. This was my favorite. I asked Amanda to read my sermon yesterday, and she said, what is United TED? I flew TED. Did anybody else fly TED? TED was a branch of their airline that they were trying to copy Southwest. And, and it, I mean, it flopped hard. Because they offered the what? Flexible flying and seats and cheap prices, but they didn't have the why. And I, this is kind of amplified by Southwest because today Southwest is not even the most successful or not even the cheapest airline. They're not. Um, and yet, any chance I get, I fly Southwest. Their why has propelled them as a company. People don't buy what you do. They buy why you exist. And I'm not saying we should market the church, but I'm saying there is some wisdom in this that you have to figure out your why. Why are we church together? Why are we community together? That's what people are interested in being a part of. And if our why, our why for doing any of this, if it is to attract more people, nobody outside of this room needs that. That is not something that, that nobody else is going to come here because we need more people. And so we have to take some time to dig deeper and ask, why are we here? What is it about our faith in this place that makes it special to us? You know, we, we could, as a church, provide the most energetic and lively worship. We could have lasers and lights and it just it would be a huge spectacle. But that would be a what? It would be a what we do. And there are so many options for entertainment in our world that I'm, I'm not sure that would be enough of a reason for people to come here. We could have a really robust youth program with all sorts of professionally trained teachers. It would be another great what we do. But people's lives are already stretched really thin, and they don't really have time to do a lot of more things. So why would they come here for that? You could have the most charismatic, personable pastor you've ever met. I don't know where you would find one of those, but you could have it. But if your whole reason is that you want more young people, if that's your why, it's not really going to be good enough. And so we, as a community, part of the reason we are doing things this way is to rediscover who it is God is calling us to be in order to identify why we exist. What is it about this place? How is it that God is calling us into new identity, new being? Why is a relationship with Jesus important to us? Why is worship important? Why do we sing the songs we sing or gather in the ways that we do? Why is mission important to us? So we are taking time to do these small groups 
to try to get away from the standard questions. What do you want to see here? More people. Instead, we're trying to get to the core, deeper. What is our identity as a people of God? Why do we exist? And I, I have faith in this process, in part because I actually don't think that the trappings of church matter as much as we think they do. I don't think you need a particular kind of worship or classes or a huge service. Rather, as a church, we need to rediscover the ways in which we understand and know God's love. Because people are looking for that, and they're looking for a community that lives that out in their core. People need to know that their existences can be so much bigger and expansive than they are now. And that work can't really happen just with me standing up here. We as a community have to figure out how to live that together in everything that we do, in every little meeting and corner and conversation and practice. Because if we can figure that stuff out, you know, people need that. They need to know the love of God. And they will buy it if we're offering it. I would even go as far to say that if we can figure out a robust and articulate reason for why we exist, for who we are in Christ and who we are calling others to be, I don't think it matters what we do. I've been in robust churches that didn't have programming, but people came because the message of God's love was so powerful there. And so we as a church are going to continue to run this race like others have ran it before us. We remember it is a marathon, not a sprint. We're not running out of time and nobody's clocking us. But we are being called out of problem solving and into the work of discernment. I think some of us are probably a little bit unsure of this. That's fine. I got to tell you this last week, there were moments when I was unsure. But I am heartened again by that call that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not say, not seen. And I would say that it requires something else, a little bit of bravery, to be willing to step out onto an unknown path. There's a scene in one of the early books of Game of Thrones where the boys of Ned Stark are fighting over a topic. There's a character in the book who, a heroic person who fought a great battle and his sons are fighting over whether or not when he was standing there on the precipice of defeat if he was afraid and how could he be afraid if he was if he showed bravery and one of the boys Bran turns to his father and asks can a man still be brave if he's afraid and Ned responds that's the only time a man can be brave And so if you're feeling uneasy about this, that's fine. It's different. It's new. It's a little out there. But what we are doing is paving the way for a new church, for a new version of our church, not just this church, but churches everywhere. We're not abandoning the past, but rather we are continuing to run the race that has been run before us. 
We are, after all, part of a great cloud of witnesses. Those who have come before us and those who continue to stand alongside us. And the church has changed before. We don't sing fugues anymore. Maybe we should. Mass isn't in Latin. We don't answer to the Pope. That's pretty good. And the people who paved the way for those changes did not know what was going to come. But there have always been people who have been brave enough, who have been faithful enough to join in the constant discernment, the race forward, who have been willing to follow God into a new world. History isn't inevitable. You have to run the race without seeing the finish line. And we have to trust that in the midst of uncertainty, God will speak, as God has spoken before. Amen.